What would you think about these obstacles in constructing a church building? What if the obstacle was while you're constructing there was a national civil war? What if in the construction of a church an anarchist group set fire to all your architecture plans? What if in your construction the main builder, an architect, was hit by a bus and died? What if I told you that church building and church project exists? And what if I told you something even crazier? This church building that started being built 140 years ago is still being built and is yet not finished. Its anticipated completion is actually 2026. It's the 100-year anniversary after the death of its architect, Antoni Gaudi. Do you know that church? The church is called La Sagrada Familia. It's in Barcelona. If you have not seen pictures of it, it is magnificent. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. And it has been built for 140 years of construction and has gone through two world wars, multiple fires, multiple pandemics, and also our anarchists trying to destroy the church by destroying the architectural plans. One person asked Gaudi one time, this old man at that time who had been working on the church building for about 40 years, what is taking you so long to complete this church building? And Gaudi responded, my client isn't in much of a hurry. Of course, he was talking about the Lord. Well, today we are going to hear about many obstacles getting in the way of God's house being built. Obstacles from neighbors and a powerful king that shuts down construction. This morning in the passage, we are going to see that there are many sinister and overwhelming obstacles that get in the way of worshiping the one true king. So let's look at the passage together, shall we? Today, Ezra chapter 4. I'm going to take it in sections, in two sections. We're going to look first at Ezra 4, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll skip ahead and look at verses 11 to the end of the chapter. So let's pay attention as we look at God's word this morning. Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ishradan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, And the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah 
and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the reign of Assyrius, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Where we're just joining us, welcome. We're going through Ezra and Nehemiah this fall and winter until the end of the year. And we have seen so far in the first few weeks we have gone through the books, things have gone well. Here are these people, these Israelites that have been in exile for 50 years, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. And after 50 years of exile, this amazing thing happened through the providence of God that this new ruler, the Persian Empire that take, took over the Babylonians, sent them back to Jerusalem to build God's house. So we saw 50,000 Israelites leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. And over the past two years that we've seen, over the first three chapters, that they built an altar and then the foundation for the temple. And we got this beautiful picture that these people, despite not much there, the ruins of a city, all there was, the foundation of that great temple, praising God and saying, for he is good and his steadfast love endures. Just imagine that picture and how beautiful it is. They were praising God for his steadfast love that he had provided for them, even in despite of the ruins of the city that might have been around them. I got to talk to a good friend this week about uh, he bought a house, he and his wife and his um, one child and a child on the way. And he's a kind of this whole house kind of guy, the fixer-upper show, right? Chip and Joanna Gaines. I'm sure some people love that kind of show around here. I'm not much of that fan, but loves the idea of working on a house, that excitement of it. And uh, so he wanted to get this project done before the baby comes. And so there's this wall between uh, the living room and the dining room, and he had three contractors come out, and they all talked about, okay, is this wall load-bearing? And all of them said, no, it's not at all. Take it down. So he brings a friend from church, and they start smashing at the wall, and then the friends on the ladder, as they're kind of taking down some of the last beams, and he hears his friend say, oh, no. And he said, that's not something I really wanted to hear at that point in time. His friend had been looking up as the one and seeing that the way it was constructed, that it was load-bearing. And the second floor was about to come down on the first floor. You can imagine my friend expressing his feelings at that time, his joys of the house and the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness, and then <laughs> this had happened. Well, it got taken care of, and they were able to work on it. But at that moment, it was not good. This is that moment. The rest of actually the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is about obstacle after obstacle 
after obstacle that comes in the way of the people of God. It's really the reality of life. If you read the Bible, you see there are tons of obstacles in this broken world. It's the reality of house projects. I'm sure some of you have all these grand dreams of a house project, right? And you have it how it's going to start on Saturday morning and it'll be done by Saturday afternoon and you're going to sit and drink a beer and look at the project by that afternoon, right? And you think, I'll just take one stop at Menards and then it becomes two and three and four obstacles. It might not be house projects. It might be a wedding. The joy of a wedding. His steadfast love endures forever. And then you get married and you realize, I don't like this person as much as I thought I did. Or taking a baby home, this beautiful child, so precious and you're just full of so much joy. And then you realize when you tell them they can't watch another Paw Patrol, they flip out. They're like, what has happened to this beautiful child I brought home? Or even the Christian life. You've been converted in the joy of the Lord, freedom from sin. But then the obstacles that come in the Christian life problems of the world, the old nature that sometimes comes back. Obstacles. And we see here in verses 1 through 6 an obstacle. Again, see things, when these exiles, these 50,000 returned to the land, there were still people there. A lot of them were some of the northern tribe that uh, had been exiled 200 years earlier by the Assyrians. And they had come back into the land. And there had been a mixture between Assyrian religion and Judaism. And we see that when the exiles come back, these people that were in the land said, can we help build the temple? And you think, well, what's the big deal? Why would they say no to these people wanting to help? doesn't seem very nice, especially to people that are, were already there. Well, we can see in the text why they said no to these people helping. Directly in the text, we see a few things. One, it, it points them out as adversaries against these, what these people are trying to do in coming back to the land and worshiping God. Also, we see when they're told not to help, that they try to sabotage what the exiles are doing. And the amount of sabotage gets at times of bribing the Persian officials. And it doesn't happen just for a year, but it happens for 20 years of this happens. That's how long it was until Darius became the head of Persia. See, they didn't want them to help because they knew that these people had their own purposes that were different from what they were trying to do in building the temple to God. So we see that directly in the text, and then we see things kind of outside the text 
more in context is that what was happening um, to many of the Israelites that had been mixed with the Assyrians and other religions is something called syncretism. It's a big word for basically saying the mixture between religions. And they were not really worshiping the true God. It's interesting, when you read Ezra, you realize that the people are trying to do something maybe different than happened than in the first exile. What was the first exile? The first exile was when the people of Israel came out of Egypt and back into the land. And now we have another exile in the sense they're coming from Babylon back to the land. Do you know what the Israelites didn't do that they got wrong the first time? The Canaanites were in the land. And God had told them not to intermingle with the Canaanites. And the Israelites did not eliminate the Canaanites from the land. And what happened because of that is a major tragedy that we saw throughout the years of Israelite history and the prophets warning against that syncretism that was happening between the Canaanites and the Israelites. And here we see now there is a faithfulness that these exiles say, we are not going to do that this time. We are not going to intermingle. We are going to follow what God has called us to do. Have you ever been working on a really cool project? And maybe your parents are starting to see, oh man, this is, this is good. And then a sibling gets in the way, Right? Maybe it's a simple building that you're doing, a Lego project. And the sibling either uh, says, hey, I want to help because they're seeing, oh, look at how much, credit they're get, how much credit and attention they're getting for building this. And you realize, no, do not help, please. Because you know the history of sabotage that sometimes happens with your sibling. And this is what's happening here. The Israelites had a specific task to build the house of the Lord. And they were what they were supposed to do, laid out in his word. It wasn't their simple desires, their own desires. No, it was what God had called them to do. And these other people had their own desires and own thoughts of what they wanted. Apart from what God had called them to do. And the exile said, we are not going to be distracted by this. We are going to follow the Lord. In 1933, the German church was in serious trouble. Syncretism was happening, specifically with nationalism and the rise of the Nazi power. And there was a churchman, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that saw the syncretism that was happening in the national church in Germany. And he started to form his own underground seminary. And a famous book comes from this time of training seminarians in Germany by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I encourage you to read it. Um, it's really good. The first chapter is worth uh, its weight in gold. You could just maybe just read that chapter. The book is called Life Together. And what Bonhoeffer is trying to explain is that there is a great delicacy in Christian community. 
to be able to hold the church and Christian community together. And that's the same thing we see here that's worn by God over and over again. It is delicate and easily can be distracted to holding the church together, holding Israel together. Bonhoeffer writes this beautiful piece in Life Together. It's a little long, but I want to encourage you to pay attention to what's being said here. And what he's trying to point out is those that can be an obstacle to building the church and how easily we can get distracted to building true church community. Here is what he says. Please pay attention. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wish dream. Every human wish dream injected into Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community. He or she who loves his dream of a community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of Christian community. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The person who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters Christianity with demands, sets up his own law, judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. When things do not go his or her way, he calls the effort a failure. So he or she becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then accuser of God, and finally, a despairing accuser of him or herself. God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship. Jesus Christ. The exiles had a task laid out by God. Those in the land had another wish dream or desire. We as the church at large have a clear goal laid out in Scripture that Christ is the head of the church and He is the good news of our salvation and is not based on our own personal desires of what we want from community. This is easily confused because the desires of our heart are wicked many of the times, and it easily can sway the church in the wrong way. How do I know if I might be an obstacle to truly building the church? James Hamilton, who's commenting on this chapter and this passage specifically, points out some few things of ways that we can tell if we're being an obstacle. When you don't get what you when you when you don't get to do what you want to do do you support the ministry anyway or do you do things to frustrate the ministry How is your heart when someone else gets the opportunity that you might have wanted 
Do you envy others getting the opportunity to do something? Or do you rejoice with them? This is the sinister nature of our desires that we might think we're doing a very sincere and great thing, but instead of really building the church, we're trying to build our own empire and our own desires. And it's sometimes very hard to actually do the hard work to look on ourselves if we're doing that ourselves. Maybe when I mention those things, you're thinking about someone else, right? Rather than maybe what God might be doing in your own heart. Obviously, I haven't dealt with that. I mean, I'm the pastor, so it's built on my dreams, right? When I graduated from seminary, I was ready to plant a church. But God had other plans. I had dreams of what the church would look like, how it would be, how finally I was going to do church differently than everyone else, right? How arrogant is that statement, okay? That is incredibly arrogant. 2,000 years of church history, I'm going to do it finally the right way. Thank the Lord for my wife that said, I don't think we're ready for this. Thank the Lord for great Christian mentors that said, I don't think you're ready for this. Thank the Lord for church accountability and the presbytery that said, you're not ready for this. The church can guard us from our foolishness and our wish dreams. There are many sinister obstacles that keep us from worshiping the true king. And what's beautiful about this passage is the exiles that came back knew the problems of the history. And instead of following their own wish dreams, they followed what God had laid down before them, them clearly. And even those that might distract them, they said, we are going to follow the Lord. Let's read on, shall we? This is verse 11 on. So this is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer 
to Rahum the commander, and Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree. And search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this manner. Why should damage grow to hurt to the hurt of the king. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well, maybe if you were looking closely, there's something very interesting about these verses, okay? Uh, that they are different than the verses that came before. We've moved from the building of the temple to the building of the city and the walls. We've moved from King Cyrus to Artaxerxes. What has happened? Well, you see verses 6 through 23 are parenthetical. It jumps forward 60 years, and then it goes back again 60 years in verse 24. You see, they're doing this because of this reason. The present readers of this passage are dealing with the walls being rebuilt and the city being rebuilt, which happens in Nehemiah. And so what's happening is, the reason that he puts this parenthetical in is because they are discouraged 60 years later about what happens, that the wall and the city uh, building is being stopped. And he's trying to encourage them by, by saying the same thing happened when it came to the rebuilding of the temple. The temple building also stopped, as we'll see, reading in Ezra chapter 5. But these readers who are reading this in Ezra right now know that the temple actually was rebuilt, even with all the obstacles that came from the kings of Persia. The temple was rebuilt. So it's to encourage the people that are reading, that are going through again this building obstacles, that God was faithful in building the temple. Does that make sense why the parenthetical is there and then it goes back, okay? I could spend a whole class on that, but I tried to explain it as quickly as I could. So again, just knowing it jumps ahead 60 years, and if you read carefully, you can see uh, why those, um, those differences, and I've explained why that was put in the way it was. Well, talk about major opposition. You move from just neighbors saying it's a problem to the king telling you, guess what? It's done. And you see the people that were in the land are buttering up the king to say, if you don't stop this, it's going to hurt you, king of Persia. Your treasury is going to be in trouble. And also it will be for your dishonor. 
we see the people in the land who they really worship as king. <laughs> the king of Persia. Could you imagine you are deciding to build a deck in your backyard? And a neighbor comes and says, can I help you with your deck? But you've seen your neighbor's deck. And you realize, no, um, no, no, I'm okay. And then the neighbor starts taunting you when you start building the deck. No, that's not how you should build it. You know, that's not right. And then he decides to bring other neighbors to start taunting you. Because he bribes them with beer to watch you build the deck, right? That would be frustrating. But what would be even more frustrating? That he writes the city planner, and then the city planner writes you a letter back that says, cease and desist from building the deck. Talk about another level of obstacle. That would be frustrating. Here they are, just the chapter before, singing the praises of God, his steadfast love who, that endures forever. And now this? I am blown away about how easily we are discouraged by obstacles that get in our way. Where is the remote? I just want to sit and watch TV. There's no more milk? Who finished the milk? The internet is down? How can I survive? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? The Bible's constant narrative like I said before, is obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in this life. But in the midst of obstacles, what's constantly through all of Scripture is, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. How is that the case? Who is the king? It's a constant battle here. For the people of the land, it's Xerxes, it's Cyrus, it's Darius. For the exiles, it's Yahweh, whose faithful love endures forever. Who is the king in our lives? When the repairman comes, or woman, comes to your house and tells you the dishwasher is broken, is that the king? I know how that destroys me. Another thing broken? Are we ever going to have savings? A teacher's verdict on our child. You know, your son or daughter is really misbehaving. I don't know if they're going to get ahead in school. 
Is that the king? Cease and desist the obstacle. A physician who gives us a verdict on our health. Talk about cease and desist. The physician says we have this disease or this time span. A president who gives us a verdict on tax policy or social policy. Is that the king? His steadfast love endures forever. We have a greater king that rules over what the repairman says, what a teacher says, what a physician says, what a president says. We have a king that no matter obstacle those people give us, we can sing and rejoice. His steadfast love endures forever. And whatever obstacle comes my way, I know he is good and he is faithful and he will be with me until the end. You don't know my obstacle, Dan. You don't know the things I face. Keep trying with your examples. They are much more harsher and much more complex than you even can believe. Jesus sitting with his disciples this last supper says to his disciples, you will have suffering in this world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And they didn't even understand the obstacles he would face. Local obstacles. His own people rejected him. Even his disciples abandoned him. And he kept going. The Roman Empire gave him a verdict. Free Barabbas, crucify him. But his steadfast love endures forever. Even in rejection by his own people, even by the rejection of a Roman Empire, even with our sin, his steadfast love endured forever. Take heart. He has overcome the world. He was laid in a tomb, but three days later, he resurrected from the dead. His steadfast love endures forever. Right? We're frustrated. Pandemic's on, pandemic's off, pandemic's on, mass on, mass off. Can I gather? Can I not? Will these issues in our nation go away? They come back, they go away, they come back.
My sickness, my health, my family member, it gets worse, it gets better, it gets worse, it gets better. What is going on? And we become defeated by them. We can let them crush us. But do we trust in the steadfast love of the Lord? I was reading Henry Nouwen this week. And he said this, and I'll close with this. A seed only flourishes by staying in the ground in which it is sown. When you keep digging the seed up to check whether it is growing, it will never bear fruit. Think about yourself as a little seed planted in rich soil. All you have to do is stay there and trust that the soil contains everything you need to grow. This growth takes place even when you do not feel it. Be quiet. Acknowledge your powerlessness. And have faith that one day you will know how much you have received. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christian, non-Christian, you need to die. You need to be in that ground and you need to let the steadfast love of the Lord take hold of you no matter what obstacles around. And then you can be nurtured in that soil. And from that, there will be great growth. 